Welcome to Data Myths Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Melinda Gagnon. So, a little about us. I'm interested in how tech helps us improve our lives. I have 20 years experience in digital communications. I'm an ex-Googler and now help launch new companies and products. And I've spent 20 plus years evangelizing tech at some of the world's largest companies. Whether you're a datafile or a dataphobe, we have something for you on this podcast. So get ready. Let's go. Hi, Brian. How are you? I am pretty awesome. You're just coming off from some travel. Yeah. Are you recovered? I am. I am recovered. I spent a little time out in Seattle. So that was, uh, that was fun. New portfolio company that we're working with and got a chance to run all over Seattle and see. And see some sunshine too, huh? It was incredible. It's actually the first time that I've been there for a contiguous week where it didn't rain at least once. So, And Bill Gates gave a shout out to that when he introduced Melinda Gates in her last stop of her book tour by saying he was surprised people showed up because it was actually sunny in Seattle. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm sad that I missed that because if I had known about that, I would have gone. Uh, but I was there for a Techstars event. So that was good. And yeah, I got to walk around the Amazon Megaplex called Seattle. Very cool. Which, which brings us to our mega topic for today, which is to talk about Amazon and how massive they are and what that means as they spread out into so many different industries and services and how that's affecting us all in our day-to-day lives. And it's amazing because I think the majority of people may not know how much they work with Amazon actually on a day-to-day basis. I was pretty surprised. I will say their dog park was pretty pathetic and uh, with how big Amazon is, I saw their dog park outside of one of their buildings and uh, come on, guys! Like that was that was barely a dog park. However, having visited their you know their headquarters a few times for for different things, they do have a great doggy daycare. It's indoors, so it might not go noticed. But yes, they have on site doggy care. They're very four legged friend friendly. Wow, that was hard to say. <laughs> Yeah, nice. But that's one of the things I absolutely love about Amazon. You see the parade of dogs walk in to headquarters every morning and they, you know, they do that every day because they stop by the reception desk and wait for their little treat. And then they continue into the office. It's very cool. Well, let's dive in, right? So Amazon has grown sufficiently large, Microsoft large from back in the nineties. Now, what do you want to talk about today? Let's do a little survey of, of where the heck they are because they are everywhere. And, and to be perfectly honest, I don't even think we can do it justice to cover. <laughs> I certainly know we can't do it justice to cover every place that they are today, but just to give a little walkthrough on the main areas that Amazon is playing right now and some upcoming areas that might be a little surprising. So we all know clearly as a, as a retail giant. Yeah, that's and, a no-brainer, right? Right. Prime. Prime so we'll everything. talk about that. Um, definitely their play with cloud computing, AWS. They have a huge presence now as a, as a grocer, right? So brick-and-mortar locations. They not only have the retail presence, the e-commerce presence, 
but the whole distribution infrastructure to support so that. Atlas Air, that's the the trucks, the last mile of delivery. Warehouses. Right. Exactly. Advanced robotics inside the warehouses to pack boxes. They are proving to be a pretty formidable player in the advertising space. That business is growing rapidly and eating a little bit of Google's lunch. What else? They're into news. Obviously, owners of the Washington Post doing some interesting new things that we'll, you know, can talk more about there. With Amazon Prime, they're huge in entertainment. They're creating original content, huge investments there. I the list is going they, on and on. They own IMDb too, so they're yes. So this was this was something that is so surprising. It's almost uh, it's been there for so long. This is one of those that you forget about. They they acquired them in 1998 wow. for 55 million. And and when you think back of where Amazon was in 1998, they were starting to sell books. Why in heck did they want IMDb? I guess just to flesh out some information about entertainment content, but it's just, it's very puzzling. And when you, this could be a whole nother chat in and of itself to look at all their acquisitions and try to get in Bezos's head to say, wait a minute, there was no writing on the wall for why this was important. And is this an early indicator of what he was building ultimately? But so yeah, IMDB is in there. And then we have home automation, intelligent home stuff. So Ring, Alexa, the whole nine yards. And then huge gaming play. So not only we have this original content, but they own Twitch. So oh, interesting. So, you know, and the again, and there are other areas so that, that they're into. I mean, they're even talking about uh you said Pillpack earlier we were talking. Yeah. Um is that an acquisition or yeah, they acquired Pillpack uh a few months back. So we're getting into the medical space. So, you know, this is all coming together to say, okay, well, Amazon is starting to touch pretty much every piece of our day or our interests or what we need. And even if it's not nothing overt, maybe simply that the data we're sharing is being stored, you know, and processed by AWS. Or, you know, when we start to use our smart home devices that is getting plugged into a much larger network that's doing things that have externalities that we maybe didn't anticipate. So this is part of us thinking about, well, what does this mean for us? And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about antitrust. Is Amazon a monopoly? And and this starts to feed into that whole conversation. Well, so a traditional definition of a monopoly or an antitrust situation is where you start to affect pricing as it affects the consumer. And so I think one of the challenges today is that prices seem to have never been cheaper, whether it be an airline, right? And if you look at all of the places where industry has consolidated over the last 20, 30 years, airlines... There's fewer airlines than ever. There are fewer, you know, options for buying stuff uh, from big retailers. Grocery stores have consolidated. The list goes on. Main Street 
has died off a bit. The mall has died off a bit. And, and traditional retailers have died off as a result of both of those. And, and a lot of people are saying, oh, that's, that's the Amazon effect. And when you have a term coined like that, that's definitely a, a PR problem for Amazon. And it used to be really the focus was the Walmart effect when you talked about the effect that it had on Main Street. And now Amazon is coming head on to really try to debunk the quote unquote Amazon effect by saying things like, well, wait a second, 90% of, of sales still happen offline, which is true. Right. However, 50% of e-commerce sales come from Amazon. That's a huge number. So yeah, they're still significant. We get it, Mr. Bezos, that you're not dominating every purchase in the country, but it's still significant. Yeah. And what I would say is, so if you take and apply that traditional monopoly measure, right, prices have actually gone down. Airline tickets have never been cheaper and there's less airlines. Granted, Amazon's not in that space yet. Uh, shipping costs have actually gone down considerably. There's less. Is that because of fuel prices though? Some of that might be fuel prices, but I think the Other actual. Consolidation. Yeah, I think some of the actual act of shipping and, you know, it being a lot more, you know, automated with yeah. robots and such, Absolutely. that's really reduced the price. Then you've got the store, you know, the online store, Amazon or, or what have you, has actually brought the price down on a lot of goods. So if we're looking at it from the perspective of lock-in and the platform and all of that, it looks like they're they're not doing something so bad. In terms of serving the customer. In terms of serving the customer and pricing, right? Because pricing has been sort of that key. Right, right. So if we think about the the main arguments for, for a monopoly, when it comes to antitrust, it's really not all about size, right? It's, it's really about... Oh, size doesn't matter now, you're saying? Correct. Correct. Okay. So, but it's not just about how, how much of the market they control. It's if, if they're actually doing something to the detriment of the customer. So meaning, are they, are they unfairly raising prices? Now, some people could argue, well, yes, because they're controlling so much of the e-commerce experience on their own platform they can actually crowd out less expensive product simply by promoting their own product more. Well, the, and the that flip, is an argument. Well, and the flip side of it too is that they could say that with AWS or with the Amazon platform, the store platform, they've reduced the price of bringing goods to market because a startup can really easily go build a store or build all the infrastructure that they need to build the store cheaper than ever. Right. So the barrier to entry to get in the market is lower than ever, arguably. True, true. And and there are other other people who actually argue that no, it is it is the size that that makes this a, a dangerous presence in the marketplace. Because it dominates so much of the experience. And if you just, to, to continue using the, the retail sales portion, one, one thing that Amazon is really proud of is the fact that 
most of their retail sales come from sellers paying Amazon to use their infrastructure. So when you think about that, they're starting to control that entire loop, right? From hosting the the site with the product information, promoting the product on site, providing that customer experience, understanding the shopping experience on site all the way through to purchase, the reviews that come along with that, that is a really powerful ecosystem. This is kind of like that time we took that bus tour out to the pyramids in Mexico. We got on the bus. This was to Teotihuacan outside of Mexico City. Yeah, and we got on the bus and we got going and then we stopped off miraculously at this food place, which was owned later, we figured it out, that was owned by the bus company or the tour company. And then we went a little further and, oh, let's stop off and do some shopping. And we stopped off there and, you know, they hustled us through there and come to find out that also was owned by the bus company, you know, and cruise ships do the same thing. They buy an island and build that infrastructure on the island and completely control price. Yeah. And and every step of the way, the experience is controlled and curated and, and optimized. And, and here's this optimization point that when you control a whole experience, you can optimize it because you have all the information, you have the control to make changes, to make it work better. And by virtue of that, you can absolutely reduce cost, reduce friction, improve the customer experience. So here lies the rub, you see, with Yeah, I see this, where you're going with this. They're they're big, which brings control, which allows them to understand and optimize and improve, which can better the customer experience. You could take that size that information to unfairly raise prices or do other things to detriment or stifle competition. So this this topic of are they a monopoly are they a monopoly is extremely complex and it actually gets down to their different market segments to truly look at the activity because the answer that's that exists in the marketing advertising space is going to be different than cloud computing. It's going to be different from, you know, entertainment to their news org. They're very different businesses. Well, and I would say it's interesting because if you look at AWS and the cloud and providing infrastructure, one of the studies that I saw was that, sure, the cloud is actually reducing prices over traditionally putting stuff on uh, on premises. Excuse me, geez, on premises. However, it's actually not reducing it as fast as the cost of the technology. So when you look at that gap, we're getting quickly to a point where if you're savvy and have the skills and ability. You could almost build something cheaper on site now because the cost is dropping fast. And Amazon is not sharing all of that cost reduction. And so that's point one. So creating services ensure the price is actually going down. However, it's going down for everybody in that ecosystem. And if there are fewer people to take advantage of the the cost reduction, that's kind of hiding in there. 
The other piece is if you have a sufficiently large organization, you can control the cost of employment. You could control cost of the labor force and sufficiently suppress the labor force. That's another way that you can monopolize, right? Absolutely. And and so you're saying that Amazon is not passing their savings on to customers when it comes to AWS and what they're trying to capitalize on, I'm guessing, is the convenience factor that, that you don't need so many either consultants to help you or in-house tech resources to have your own environment. Yeah, and some of the argument for the cloud has always been, and and I think that the cloud makes sense in a lot of places. However, when you get to the point of sufficient size and your low watermark of what you need is sufficiently large, meaning I have this data or I have compute resources that I need to use for my business every single day of every single year, not You know, if I'm a retailer, not in November and December when things are going crazy and and the website's blowing up and I need 400% more compute and, and, and resources, I'm talking every single, you know, Monday in the middle of April, you know, whatever that horsepower is, if you have a sufficiently large organization where you can, you know, build in durability and resiliency and your business plan and model, it makes sense probably to be looking at having that on your own premises versus just putting everything in the cloud because you have to manage it anyway today. So that's that's point one. You know, point two to this is a different example, right? And to step back, I know we've talked a lot about Uber and uh, ride sharing and gig economy, et cetera. In our last podcast. In our last yeah. podcast. Okay. And so when I got to Seattle, I decided, hey, what the heck? I will follow these six signs to the ride share area and see how this will go. And I knew roughly how it was going to go. And so I follow these signs. I walk past the taxi stand which, by the way, had a pretty short line. And I got into, you know, the third or fourth story of the garage and the parking garage, some dark alleyway with about 200 other people. And there were no less than 40 different queues that cars could pull into. And so then I put in my, my request and then I wait. And of course, you know, my the car that's coming to pick me up is a gray Prius. Do you know how many other gray Priuses were picking people up? Like every other Uber was a gray Prius. And so it was chaos. And I get thinking about it, and it's like this is a lot like the argument for cloud in a way, and that there are times where the cloud just doesn't make sense. If you have enough, you know, of a, of a demand, why wouldn't you just send the cars there, right? And so now I'm waiting and I'm watching my car drive around the loop at the airport. And I asked the guy later, hey, why were you like driving around? 
oh, a police officer like waved me around. So I had to drive around the loop a couple times before I could come into this area because it was so congested. Meanwhile, I could have gone down to the taxi stand, which has a very different model, which is we're going to put 20 taxis over there and the taxis just keep coming. And if there's a line of resources, meaning passengers that need servicing, just keep sending yellow things with four wheels. Right. Yeah. Right? And there's typically someone there with a radio who actually says, you know, calls the cab company and says, hey, send more cabs, exactly. right? We're, we're light. Yeah. So that's a very different resource model than everyone demanding their, you know, on demand resource, AKA Uber or Lyft or whatever else. And it just didn't work. And so I thought about that and I was like, oh, that's interesting. It actually compares quite readily to cloud and sort of having on-demand resources in the cloud versus if you know you're using it and you're always going to be using it, you could get cost benefit by having your own resources. And that's that's such an interesting topic. And I would love to talk more about that in another podcast about when does it make sense to either shift from cloud to on-prem and when does it make sense to have both and how do we think about all that? It always makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But, you know, to answer that question, it always makes sense for the most part to have both. Okay. Right. Sort of like running a consulting firm and not having some, some contracted help, right? You don't have that elastic if you don't do that. So, you know, just something to think about. And yes, I agree. Let's let's carry on. Uh, Amazon, Monopoly, go. Okay. All right, cool. So let's see. What else with Amazon? All right, ads. Let's go there. So when we think about what they're doing in that space, it's growing really quickly. And they're starting to erode a little bit of what Google is is after especially when it comes to search ads. So little disclaimer here. So I, I worked at Google in ad tech. Uh, when I went to WPP, I then worked with Amazon and advised them on their search product. So little little disclaimer here that I've been in the walls of, of these companies and WPP is the world's largest ad buyer. Uh, recently in the past year, to give an example of, of how big this is, So Amazon is projected this year just to be at 11 billion in ad revenue. And when you think about how that that breaks out, WPP, the the world's largest ad buyer, spent about 300 million on behalf of customers on Amazon search ads last year. And they said, and this is not inside information, this is publicly available information, 75% of that came from Google search budgets. So they're, they're managing these budgets on behalf of clients and search as a whole is a bucket, right? This is search exposure. This is how we're reaching users who are actively asking for my product information. And to manage these dollars, Amazon is considered in the same light as Google when it comes to search ad buying. Amazon is another search engine. That's incredible to me. And where does it rank? So I know Google search is at the top, 
followed by, I think, YouTube. Is that correct? Is that its own search? Oh, YouTube is a search engine as well that absolutely has to be optimized, um, certainly for organic search. And when it comes to why Amazon is so important in this ecosystem, I mean, one, it's because people go there to research products. Think about all of the fantastic product information that's there in their reviews. Not only can you research a product, well, it's the full ecosystem. You can also buy the product. So when you look at search queries, it's so valuable because half of search queries when it comes to product research actually starts on Amazon. Wow, that's that's incredible. It is. So, so advertisers, so these you big know the- brands... Can I, can I cut in for a sec on that? Yeah. Like I, I don't think about it for certain things. So electronics, I no longer think of Amazon cause I've had some bad electronics purchases. I feel like reviews, so many reviews are just either canned or cooked or, or whatever you want to call it, uh, cheesed, you know, the system is cheesed, um, uh, as a gamer would say. And I, sort of stopped using Amazon for purchasing electronics and really researching electronics because I just feel like a lot of their their information is out of date or if there's multiple versions of things, it seems to get lost in the system. So B&H, where I've bought photo gear for from you know forever, has really like stepped up their game, tend to have really great reviews, really meaningful, input from people that have actually bought the product. So I spent a lot of time over there. And again, not an ad, just a personal buying behavior. And so I find myself going to some of these other locations, mainly because it's just as easy to buy there and they seem to have a lot better data. Right. And, and, you know, from being an, an expert in those certain product areas where you like to go get your information. And that will, that will always be present for consumers who, who really have a good understanding of the product category that they're engaging with. And to, to provide a little context on this whole Amazon Google thing, even though Amazon is creeping in there and their, their ad business is growing rapidly, Google still has the lion's share. I mean, they're at 78% of the U.S. search ad market. So even though Amazon's creeping in and, and stealing some budget, they're, they're not going anywhere. I mean, this is not a big upset, upset right now, but it's something to be aware of because it is, it is significant. So let's, let's draw one parallel before we get too far down the, is this a monopoly path? Microsoft. So back in the 90s, Microsoft obviously went through antitrust actions and ultimately got, you know, broken up a little bit. So part of that was about them taking Internet Explorer and the operating system and bundling it together with hardware so that people really didn't have a choice. I mean, it was really, really difficult to buy a Dell, for instance, that didn't have Microsoft bundled in. And inside of that bundle... There was also Internet Explorer, and so it was really, really difficult to have any choice around the Internet browser. So fast forward to where we're at today, and that was fairly clear-cut. They had over 90% of the market. 
in you know desktop operating systems as well as server operating systems and browsing. So very different. I think that was very easy to measure and it was very, very difficult to be anyone else. Netscape essentially went out of business uh, as a result of this. I don't think they had a good business model. That's a whole different argument. Uh, but now we're into Amazon and it's like Amazon is sort of keeping all of these different businesses on life support under the guise of, hey, it's not really a monopoly. But when we start thinking about the data that they have at their fingertips now, they have Alexa data. So they have voice prints from a ton of people. They have machine learning from those voice prints and the types of things that people ask for. They have, it's arguable that they're probably listening when you don't say, hey, Alexa, do this thing. And we have found that that is, that is the case. It, Amazon claims, of course, that, that they aren't, aren't recording unless it's activated. But there have been cases, for example, where their, their team that basically reviews Alexa responses, questions and responses to help train their AI algorithms have caught content where the user isn't necessarily aware that they're being recorded. So to say it doesn't happen, of course it happens. And, and not to say that that is an intention of Amazon, but it's most certainly happens because the AI is not perfect. It's learning and it, it mistakes words all the time. That's why you hear these funny stories of, oh, Alexa just started laughing. Well, because it picked up on a word that it thought was Alexa laugh. And, and that's one thing that Amazon learned and it updated the activation to say, Alexa, can you laugh? So it wouldn't make that mistake. And you have this creepy speaker all of a sudden laughing, you know, when you, when you don't know what's going on. So part of it is just where the technology is. But when you realize that, that could have some pretty unnerving consequences to think that you could be recorded and not know it. Well, and, and so let's keep down the path. I don't want to really stop at any one spot too long if we can, because there's so much to cover because these there guys is, are There's huge. so much. So then you've got things like Ring, which is the doorbell that has the camera in it and you can control from anywhere. So... I was, while I was in Seattle last week, I saw a newspaper ad for a director of news for Ring. And what is in, Ring doing with news? Well, that's a great question. Hmm. So I read down through the job description and down towards the, the bottom of the job description, it talked about reporting crime off of Ring's video. So that would be taking video that someone, I guess, allows to be public from their doorbell and allowing someone to report the news on that. That's kind of creepy, but that's a whole different topic. So let's just well, keep moving. And well, one other note before we yeah. move. So I know that there are also ways that the community share ring information. So I have family in, in Albuquerque. <laughs> The whole Albuquerque has, let's face it, a lot of a lot of activity, quote unquote, and and they their little neighborhood. I don't want to call it neighborhood watch, but the the neighbors essentially share their information from Ring, so they can all know if there's creepy stuff going on in the neighborhood. So I find that 
quite helpful in terms of how you're applying this neighborhood information, but to bring it to the level and and exposure of news seems strange to me. Well, and if you think about it, right, where does, you know, innocent until proven guilty go when they're reporting on news that hasn't actually technically been deemed a crime, investigated or prosecuted? Well, I mean, the media does that all the time. Something True. happened. Who knows who knows what did it? But I mean, it, that gets us into the whole mess of what is news and oh my goodness, you know. Whatever happened to like Facebook and are there, you know, real editors nowadays and shouldn't we have editors again all all of this, all of this stuff. Yeah. So, let's just let's just keep going down the whole list, right? And so then you get into content creation and prime video. So now they're creating content. Now they're getting viewing and behavioral understanding of what you like to watch and all that. This is a ton of data. And when you're able to stitch it all together, this makes Google look like a saint, as far as what they have access to. Well, and I mean, let's not say sinner or saint in, in this conversation because this this could be all used for noble purposes. The, the, the danger is when one company has so much control that how are they stitching that all together to have this type of omnipotent view of what's happening in our country, what's happening among the the you know people who are using their services, and and that's where the whole monopoly thing starts to take a whole new light. That sure, this this could have the most noble of reasons, and I have no reason to believe it doesn't. I, I'm not saying sitting here saying that oh, Amazon is this you know conspiracy theory to to rule the world or something. No, but when we know. AI is imperfect. We know it's learning. We know that data breaches happen often. This this starts to become a, 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 a something what we should absolutely be paying attention to. Like what are the safeguards with all of this? Well, and every time there's a non-barrier, meaning all of these portfolio of companies that are under Amazon's watch are all able to share data back and forth and left and right and create machine learning models based on that really huge set of data without any controls, meaning they don't have to go outside and connect to Equifax. So they don't have to go talk to JP Morgan Chase to see banking data, or they don't have to go to ADT to see home data. And each time you go outside with something like that, you would think that there is some type of data policy in how they wish for you to use the data. And so there's some control. And I think when it's all under one umbrella, data becomes really, really large and there's no like cost associated with that. And it's you're able to leverage that in such a way that people might not even understand how. 
Yeah, it, it makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And, you know, a, a, a really good example, I think, of how Amazon's information is starting to come to life in different ways. So back in 2017, they started testing their facial recognition platform called Recognition with a police department in Washington state. And it's available for the officers to basically use a photo from anything that they, that they have access to. They even can use it with a sketch of a description, which is not recommended uh, by, by Amazon to do, but they're using that to help to find people's identity. And typically how that goes, they enter into the system. They have five different examples that, you know, it could be this person. And then it's a matter of cross-referencing, just like in any investigation, right? Maybe there's a, a Facebook profile. And, and how does that connect to other publicly available information about their home address and, and so forth? And it has been been used to to prosecute people. And, and it's not as if that's the, the nail in the coffin, so to speak. It's part of the investigation. But that's also something to think about is how this is starting to creep into these really important, important matters. And, you know, there's been criticism that it doesn't do a good job of, of identifying African-American faces and, you know, people of color. So, you know, these are all part of that, not only AI bias, but also how we want this information shared and accessed. Is this, is this helping us and is it operating in the way that we want it to? Well, let's, let's be clear. You really, with AI today, you probably, you definitely don't want to be a minority. You definitely don't want to be in the bottom third of anything, whether it be lending or something that someone deems not beneficial because whether you should be there or shouldn't, you're probably getting classified or stereotyped whether you like it or not. And that's a crying shame because we, you know, the great part about America, right, is that everybody has the same opportunity. Well, my big concern with AI is really that transparency of algorithm and that it's making decisions not just on too many statistics, but also so that people have a fair shot at doing the same as, as others. Right. And, and there's also, you know, debate around, well, how safe of it is as well. Like, let's say that this is used to falsely identify a, a suspect, you know, one saying this person is guilty, but still you may have an officer showing up to someone's house and there could be an element of danger there. I mean, we know that We've had a case recently where someone was was killed by a police officer when they were mistakenly identified, and you know this is this is not you know I would say commonplace, but it, it, we still need to think about is this is this enough to go on, and and how it's being used because while Amazon has a few recommendations on how to use the platform. It's not as if it's, it's hard and fast. I mean, it's, it's open for them to use. They did like a thousand searches 
last year in this particular, you know, case. Well, so let's, I want to, I want to make it a little bit more about the data and then we can kind of close out on sort of where this maybe is headed. So from a data perspective, if you look at all the things that we've spoken about so far and sort of that classic monopoly, here's the big place where we haven't quite seen yet. And I, I was just talking to some founders the other day and they said the words, oh, well, data is so free and easy because it's getting created so many places. So we've built our model off of this free data over there. Well, my argument is that free data is going away and, and that could be you know, access to different apps that share data with you that you could build an algorithmic model off of, et cetera. That stuff's going away. And as data gets monopolized, Amazon's going to be able to name whatever price they want on that data or make it sufficiently hard for a startup to get their hands on that data. So it's a little bit less about money because today we do a terrible job worldwide of putting a value on data. So infonomics, the measure of value to data, we do a terrible job with that. There's not a great way to say this pile of data is worth this amount of money on the lifetime value of that data. And so as a result of that, it's sort of flying under the cover of radar of what this data is actually worth. And so my fear is that we get to a point that we're way far down the path. All this data has been collected. You know, fewer startups are, are starting up, even though the barriers to entry to build that infrastructure to start a startup should make it cheaper and easier. The real problem is getting access to data and getting access to data moving forward is going to make or break a company, especially if they're talking about leveraging AI, machine learning, uh, blockchain, or anything like that, that requires a ton of data to sufficiently build a good model. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And we heard something that was pretty astonishing really last fall. It came from a, an Amazon all-hands meeting when uh, Bezos essentially said that Amazon's not too big to fail and that he predicts that one day Amazon will fail. And he was really talking historically about the fact that you know, big companies have a lifespan. And, and in his mind, that's really about 30 years. It's not a, it's not 100 years. And part of, of that concern is around antitrust laws and and potential government regulation that that are concerns for him. So he certainly is is to say he's a smart person. We all know that and and understanding what's happening in in politics right now and especially as all of our behemoths and of technology companies are growing and and accessing more and more information. So it will be interesting to see the next moves and if self-regulation will start to come into play. I don't think self-regulation is going to work. I think we're past that point. I think that it's not just Amazon either. Uh, I really wanted to sort of open up and, and talk through this discussion from a term of not necessarily price consideration 
as antitrust has typically been talked about, but about access to data and how data can actually drive decisioning down the road. So thank you very much for your time. I think this was a good conversation today. Absolutely. Enlightening as always. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is sponsored by Uprise Partners. Uprise launches startups and evolves established companies. Check it out at www.uprisepartners.com. Please like, subscribe, and share, and we'd love to hear from you. Give us a shout if you have a great idea that you want us to include. Just email us at hello at datamyths.com. Catch you next time.